Full Service Radio programming is available on our website, fullserviceradio.org, and as a podcast, thanks to Simplecast. For more information, visit simplecast.com. Tuned in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the DC Public Library on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, DC. I'm your host, Victor Benitez. David Quick, Adult Service Coordinator, joins us on this Notes from the Library episode, and we'll discuss some of the library's reading programs like DC Reads. Hi, David, and welcome to the show. Hi, Victor. Glad to be here. Great. Thanks for being here on short notice, really. Yes, <laughs> um, I'm glad that the radio is happening. Yes. And thanks for helping me do it. Um, well, David, um, you're here to talk to us about DC Reads. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just tell us more about what DC Reads is? Sure. Uh, DC Reads is a uh, quote-unquote one-city, one-book program where we try to get everyone in the city reading one book at the same time and discussing and connecting with each other by reading the book together. Uh, We just finished our DC Reads program, which happened during the month of May, and we read a book called The Refugees by Viet Tong Nguyen. It's a book of short stories. Yeah. Um, I also try to read with all of you guys um, in the month of May I'm still trying to catch up and finish the book but. plenty of time <laughs> <laughs> yeah so what are some of the goals why, the, why, um, why should we be reading a book together um, well, well uh, I think that's something you and I can talk a little bit about why it's a good thing for a community to read one book together like this uh, so uh, these One City, One Book programs are something that a lot of cities do, often led by their public libraries, but sometimes by other institutions as well. And the goal is to give the community one piece of literature or reading that they can all read together and discover common ideas and questions that uh, allow them to explore those ideas together. Okay. Sounds good. And can you tell us about how um, The Refugees was selected this year? Sure. Um, so when I uh, got the, the privilege to guide this program for DC Public Library, I wanted to pick a book that was a, a recent piece of literary fiction, something that a lot of people could go to a bookstore and find on the shelf and be interested in reading, something that probably would be a new book to a lot of people. But uh, as I think you've been talking a bit about on this show, this is also a year when we're exploring the history of 1968 and all the things that happened that year, both here in D.C. and across the country. So we wanted to pick a book that would fit in thematically with that history, but uh, not necessarily literally tap into what happened here in Washington, D.C., the library has been working with a local historian named Maria McWhorter, who I think was also on the show. And I just started asking around to some of our different people, including uh, in special collections, for ideas for books like this. And uh, Carrie Cotton Williams, who runs our special collections, got this suggestion from Maria as a book that would relate to more of the, the Vietnam War history that, that, uh, that happened that year, but that also brings us into the present day with... Uh, a, a vibrant Vietnamese-American community that lives mm-hmm. here, whose uh, history here is connected to what happened in 1968. Right. 
but would be explored through a really great piece of, of literature. Yeah, no, and, and I wasn't even aware myself of this vibrant Vietnamese community living here in D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we go to Vietnamese restaurants, we see them here in, in the city. Um, but you had an opportunity to host conversations around the book. Yes. Um, you, ha- you hosted a conversation with Angela Spring and Eric Wang. Yes. Um, can you tell us about that clip, um, the first clip that we'll, we'll hear soon? Um, yeah, just how did you do that recording? Sure. Um, so we tried to record a conversation for each of the eight stories in the book to highlight the fact that a piece of literature can be engaged and be uh, unpacked and discussed by a lot of different kinds of people. So the we got to do seven. We didn't quite make all eight, but um, I like to think that those recordings reflect the way that the whole community can can talk about these different stories and and find meaning in them together. Uh, Angela Spring is the owner of Duende District Bookstore, and I just wandered into that bookstore. It's a bookstore whose mission focuses on uh, people of color, uh, writers and readers of color, and they had a pop-up store in Columbia Heights, and I wandered in, and they had the refugees right there on the table, so I immediately started asking her to do things for us for DC Reads, and she jumped right in, and I really appreciated it. She works with Eric Wang, who's co-worker of Tolly Moly, which is a Burmese restaurant in Union Market. And I just put out the idea of them sitting down and talking about one of the stories, the transplant. And so we got them in a room together, turned on a recorder, and they started talking about this story, the transplant. Yeah, and Jack, whenever you're ready, um, it's clip one. It's Angela Spring and Eric Wang discuss the transplant and what it's like also to read short stories. Yes good short story it's like reading a really good poem you just have to sit with it for a while i definitely felt this way about the for sure for sure i think uh the story because there are so many layers to it that i had to often just reread a couple of pages after i was done with it because at the end of it i realized that i had just read a story about you know, something else than I thought that I was reading. So I had to go back and catch all the different themes and metaphors that were sort of brought up and then, you know, sort of try to verify that I read it right and that I interpreted it right. And yeah, it was it was definitely a treat. I loved it. Oh yeah, yeah, it was very visceral. Um, just like, you sort of like catch your breath at the end. He's really good at sort of having these very, the, these small moments all add up into something really big in such a compact space. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I love, I know we talked a little bit about, uh, there's a lot of cultural things going on in this in this story. Um, and I love that the main characters are, so it's Arthur um, is like the main main character. And then the, the second main character is Louis. And I love that it's the two of us because I was like, yes, because Arthur is Latino and I'm Latina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and right, Louis's like Asian. Asian. And <laughs> like, so, yeah. yeah, so we got like, so it's, I feel like we can dig even deeper into sure. like what those things could be. That's uh, true, because I feel like maybe there are some things about Asian culture that's. Uh, Asian American culture specifically that's referenced in the book that maybe you have missed and then there are definitely things I know about Latinx community and their traditions that I've missed uh, you know for example the the coffee brand and all that stuff like you know when he named the coffee brand I was like I don't, I don't know what that is but you know meanwhile I was like you, oh man you got that <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. 
it's yeah. So and you know, I, I, the the story begins almost uh, after describing you know Arthur's um, uh, transplant. Just briefly, they go right into the scene where they're talking about the food at uh, at the restaurant. That's a Vietnamese French restaurant, and uh, I, I think that's right. That's the first time that. Uh, Vietnam Nguyen really addresses the issue of authenticity because Louis keeps on saying that this is just as good as what you can get in Saigon but you know what is authenticity if you take it out of the context of where it's actually made mm. right um, you know yeah. authenticity and being authentic is such a narrow definition that like what is actually authentic if you take it out of where it was always supposed to be so, uh, you know, I, I think that's when you start to kind of get a feeling of like, okay, I'm being challenged to sort of think a little bit outside of, you know, my comfort zone about realness and authenticity. Absolutely. And then also the decadence of the food, the way that right. he describes the food mm. is, it's almost, it's such a sensual, it's like the one part of the, the story where it's just, it's very sensual, it's very sensory. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and I love that idea of like authenticity because I feel like those of us who come from immigrant communities were often told that we're not, we, you know, we talked a little bit about this, we don't belong here. We're in many, the myriad of ways mm -hmm. that I feel like is addressed in this story as well. Um, but the food, food, I mean, food is our cultural entry point, right? right? And so to have it start with this meal, I think it's fascinating. Right. I don't know, what are your, th I mean, it's, it's also your profession. Like, what are right, your thoughts? Right, No, I, I think you're right. And, you know, uh, a lot of times, right, when I'm working, people will ask me if the food that we cook is authentic. And, you know, instead of trying to get into this current conversation that we're having, I'll just go, well, it's the recipe was uh, developed by an actual Burmese person. And to most people, that is a satisfying answer. Because for them, authenticity is not so much about the recipe or what's in the dish. It's about who is making the dish. And if you use that definition, then yeah, sure, there's a lot of authentic meals out there. Uh, and, you know, people just want to be part of that tradition. When they talk about authentic, what they want is not authenticity. What they want is to be part of a tradition. Was this cooked by someone who has always cooked it this way? Mm -hmm. Right? And I think that in the story, uh, when during that meal, it, you're sort of getting... You're seeing how Louis has accepted Arthur into Arthur into his community of just welcoming him as embracing him as a friend, mm -hmm. and that's where where we sort of get a sense of like what their relationship is like is sort of like Louis holding Arthur's hand and just kind of like walking him through this world that Arthur has no idea how to yeah. navigate through. I almost feel. Like I don't know if you got this sense, but I almost felt like Louis felt he was occupying kind of a mentor role of, of bringing Arthur in to just all levels of his world, but also like the food. The right. food was you know, sort of, yeah. again, the entry point, right? And also while they're eating food, uh, Louis is, you know, imparting his like these like his own version of wisdom, right? Like, you know, he, he you know, uh, like when he's talking about uh, the real estate or when he's talking about, you know, what 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 life is like. Like he's just, you know, you, you get the sense that like Louis might be a younger man, but he is playing a mentor role, like yeah, you said. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the other thing that I noticed about particularly that scene 
um, in the beginning. So they're having this meal, and uh, it, then it transpires that, of course, uh, Arthur is keeping his garage full of these, you know, fake goods, mm-hmm. like the, the luxury, big luxury goods, which, of course, is illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's doing it because he feels grateful to him, which you kind of get alludes to in the first like couple pages because he, quote, owes his life mm-hmm. to Louis's father. Um, and then it turns out, of course, that he thinks that Louis's father gave him the liver that he had to have a transplant right. for. Um, but in, in that conversation, I thought it was really interesting that Louis kept trying to bring it around to saying, it's almost like he, he needed Arthur to agree with him that what he's doing, mm-hmm. it, that, that, you know, selling fake goods, is, it does more good than harm. Right. I thought that was, was like, interesting. Who right. is this, who is this for, guy? Because <laughs> for him, you know, right, like, he's sort of, like, creating his own definition of what is good. It's a sliding scale for him, right? It's mm-hmm. good because he's giving poor people... Uh, or people who can't afford it, a chance to experience what it's like to have luxury in their lives. Uh, And, you know, in that sense, yeah, sure. If you're giving people who otherwise would not be able to afford such luxuries a chance to feel like they're they're empowered and that they're rich, then sure, that is good. But if you look at it from a societal perspective, right, that's bad because you're doing something illegal. You are... Uh, you know, inflating the cost of luxury goods that mm-hmm. was already expensive. Uh, you are, you know, uh, taking advantage of people who might not know that they're fake, right? So, like, in, you know, it's like, well, so who's right? What What is good and what is bad? And, you know, I don't even think Arthur knows, right? Because he obviously doesn't because he decided to pay full, pay back uh, supposed son of the man who gave up his liver for him mm-hmm. by doing something illegal, which is holding illegal items in his house. Uh, but, you know, I think the shining moment comes for Arthur at the end when he gets kind of mad that he was lied to. So, like, you get a sense that, you know, all right, then what is good, right? Like, for Arthur, obviously, legality is not an issue. That's not That doesn't determine whether you're a good person or not. Mm-hmm. For him, it's about honor, integrity, and honesty. So like that that was the only moment that I felt like oh Arthur's a pretty good guy like you know yeah. <laughs> that's so interesting though because he's not an honest person he's at all. not he's not he's not it's a nice the, guy yeah. at all both <laughs> of them and, and, and what I love about that is both of them are inherently dishonest people mm-hmm. who it seems like when they're with each other are, that's the only time that they're really honest um, and and so you definitely is that an authentic friendship right it's that right. question of like authenticity where it turns out. You know, Louis's not who Arthur thought he was, and then Louis at that scene when he finds out that he's not is actually really, he's like sad. That he was like, I right. thought we were friends, right? And Arthur's like, No, I we were only friends if I you know had this like one specific thought about you or a piece of information about you, and also because like Arthur obviously felt like he owed him, and that's where I felt Arthur was actually even smaller in that. Like, Hi everyone, you're still listening to DC Public Library on Full Service Radio. Um, you just listened to a clip with Angela Spring and Eric Wang discussing the transplant, um, a short story in the refugees by Viet Thanh Nguyen. Um, David, do you have any reactions to their discussion? Um, anything that resonated with you? Sure. I. I think that in a lot of ways it uh, highlights what I was talking about in terms of a, a one city, one book program like this what it can do in the sense that that discussion of authenticity 
is a really good thing to talk about. And uh, Eric, I think, discussed it quite beautifully. You know, later in that interview, he talks uh, talks about some of the 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 trending foods, uh, the food trends that are out there that are very hip, and maybe some people are playing fast and loose with the names of dishes, like these days ramen or pho or bang mi, uh, and. In some ways, he unpacks that to say, you know, who's to say what an authentic bang mi is like? But it's a meaningful discussion, and as we're all eating those foods, it's good for <laughs> us to to think about where those foods came from and right. who's using those names. And he uses the word later: Are they using it respectfully? Are they creating a recipe that is in a name that is respectful of where that food came from? Yeah. So for me, this book was an opportunity to have those discussions that I really appreciated. Yeah, no, that was、um, really interesting too. For me, the this whole conversation about authenticity, but also, I mean, here in America, and it's like all these different cultures are mixing. So, like this multiracial aspect is very unique to where we live. And but right, these these questions that we have to ask about authenticity, who's making these things, like the tradition, are very important questions,、mm-hmm. and it's respectful to、yeah. to kind of be open.、Um, To many th- different things, so yeah, I think Eric, and even just talking about the short story through this,、um, like the food、um, coming in through this, I don't think I would have come through an understanding of the short story as he did,、mm-hmm. um, given his background. Yeah, and his business partner Simone at Tolly Molly、uh, actually hosted a book club、uh, at the end of the month of May that led into a, a cooking demonstration by Chef Kevin Tian who. Is a big deal now. He runs a restaurant called Himitsu, and he he is he came. He's a first generation Vietnamese American. His family came here, but he doesn't necessarily tie himself to Vietnamese cuisine. So he's he's living out a lot of these questions through his work and through his business.、Um, and he was just an Iron Chef, so it was really fun to have、oh, a,、wow. <laughs> a book club with an Iron Chef chef、awesome. right there. <laughs>、um, that's really great.、Um, how do you find all these connections and all these people to bring into these programs? I think you know, like with with Angela, I just walked into the bookstore, and、uh, I, for me, I I love just telling people what we're doing at the library and asking them if they want to help us. And a lot of times, if you ask them, they're willing to. And、yeah. for a program like this, you know, bookstores should be our partners. So I'm I'm always looking for opportunities to do it. So you're seizing the moment and talking about your work, absolutely, and finding those connections. <laughs> yes. <is great. laughs> So,、um, can you tell me some of the other programs that、um, DC Reads hosted、um, sure. throughout the library system and in the community? Sure,、uh, we had a lot of a lot of book clubs、uh, hosted by、uh, library staff, but also external partners like Angela and then、uh, Simone at Tolly Molly.、Um, we also we hosted a panel community discussion at the Mount Pleasant Neighborhood Library. Hosted by Anu Yadav,、uh, who's been working with the library on some of the 1968 work, also from more of an artistic、uh, point of view. But、uh, she led a discussion with some of our commu- with some community leaders who do work around refugees and immigrants about an essay that's actually that Nguyen wrote that's in the, the the back of the paperback edition about called on being a refugee and、right. being an American, where he、uh, he really. He doesn't take a very rosy view of kind of the American dream as something that、uh, refugees have access to,、right. and really, I think, holds、uh, holds us accountable to some of the 
the things that we're yeah. not not doing well to treat refugees well and um, yeah I mean even just his whole conversation at the author talk yes and reading that essay kind of really kind of woke me up to think about displaced people yes. um, through this lens of, of being a refugee and I mean we have displaced people in the United States like all the time like what does that say or just like it really makes us think about these things yes and he uh he identifies as a refugee when he you know at that event at the end of the month he when he introduces himself he says i am a refugee he he and he he draws the distinction from the experience that immigrants go through um and he does it very respectfully but he 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 wants to highlight that conversation which is as important now as it has ever been yeah do you think do you feel like um, through these programs that the library had, did we get to really unpack what it is to be a refugee through these programs? I know there was some coffee conversations as well, where a lot of these things, um, people came together from very diverse backgrounds to talk about this issue. I think it's, at the very least, we had people in rooms sitting together talking about these things together um you know you hosted a coffee and conversations discussion of one of the stories i think you did black-eyed women right right um yeah and uh a few of our our colleagues around the city host a program called people in stories Mm -hmm. which is a short story discussion group and we were able to add black-eyed women to that uh, to their roster of stories so we had people leading discussions of that story as well and i think uh, in one of our clips, uh, uh, one of our colleagues talks about how her family history, she leads these literary discussions, but uh, they were talking about, she talks about being boat people, which boat people is a term that Nguyen unpacks a lot and kind of right. offers an alternative to, but she still talks about that experience. So what conclusions, what consciousness were uh, raised, I don't know, but certainly we had people sitting in the same room talking about these questions, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, when I hosted the Coffee and Conversation, I mean, it was, Coffee and Conversation is kind of a safe space for everyone in that, in the specific library to engage in community around conversation. Mm-hmm. And like we talked about the idea of just immigrants and refugees, um, and I mean, for me, it was surprising how the participants there connect. Like, yeah, they saw displaced people as being refugees. Like, it wasn't that much of a leap for them to see it through this lens. Um, but even hearing the second clip that we're about to listen to, Mimi talking about her own family and kind of really on a very personal level that's really intimate. Yes. Um, so, yeah, Jack, whenever you're ready, it's um, the second clip with Mimi discussing black-eyed women. So we can talk about the boat um, on page um, 14 and the 13. And just for anyone listening out there, uh, content warning, it is violent and it has a rape scene in it. But, um, you know, I, it just made me think about people who flee countries. Like, why would you ever do that? Why would you ever get um, on a boat in uncharted territory to... I don't know, find a better life. Why not stay put in Vietnam? And so my parents were both boat people, um, not together. They met in the United States. But um, my mom and her family were lucky enough to, you know, buy their way into a fishing boat. Um, And it wasn't like a fancy cruise liner ship. It was a small, cramped uh, boat 
you know, made for fish, not for hundreds and hundreds of people. And so when I asked her, you know, Mom, why would you do that? Why would our family flee? She said, well, you know, it was really, really bad in Vietnam. There was no food. Um, there were no jobs. People were being taken away into education camps, killed, arrested. And so, you know, it's better to try and find a better life, try to find freedom um, at the expense of your own life than to just fester in a country where there was no hope and no future. And so they were on the boat for nine days. Um, and I said, Mom, were you scared? She said, no, I was happy. And she said, you know, it was only the lucky people who were able to afford passage into the boat, into these rickety, horrible boats that, um, you know, might lead to one's demise. You were going to say something, Jay? No, oh, no, no, I'm listening. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And so... You know, they were on the boat for ten, nine or ten days, and uh, they finally landed in Hong Kong. Um, and she said she was happy, though. You know, live or die, life or death. At least she was fleeing, you know, a really bad situation. Um, but she said, you know, I, Nini, you've never known hunger or thirst the way I have. Have you ever been so thirsty that your throat felt black? You know, but she said she was happy, and so they managed to um, land in Hong Kong. My family on my mom's side was really, really lucky because they weren't, um, you know, assaulted by pirates the way this mm -hmm. um, character um, was. But on my dad's side, my three aunts, who I've never met, also uh, tried were boat people, but they were never found. So. You know, we, my family on my dad's side don't know the fate of my three aunts, if they are living or dead, if they um, were raped or, you know, drowned. We've never heard from them again. So that's, you know, a really, really sad tragedy. So, you know, I really admire, you know, all refugees, but especially the boat people, because it takes a lot of guts and courage to leave your homeland. I mean, I, as an American, cannot imagine fleeing Washington. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, and I hope I never will be able to imagine that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it takes a lot of guts. Or desperation, you know. Or desperation. You're out in the open seas. I mean, they were, they were out in the open. They are, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And just... And many, many, many people have died, I, I am assuming. Yeah. Um, lots of unaccounted for people because... You leave the you leave Vietnam or you leave that country and uh, I mean there's no one like taking yeah it's illegal you're fleeing so it's you don't know how many people die. This is a story that um, your your mother told you this, but were you older when she told you, or was it was it something that was talked about in the family early on? You know, I think because we did my mother's side of the family didn't have the same tragic outcome as our narrator did, that it wasn't hush-hush, it wasn't, you know, kept within the confines of your heart. It was, well, yeah, this is what happened, and we're, we feel really, really lucky and blessed, um, because, and they acknowledged many, many people um, have suffered, like, unimaginable torture and pain and death um, as boat people, and they, they know, they know how lucky they are to be here. Um, and I'm sure piece. maybe you've heard 
your parents and their friends talking about this all through your life because it's a frame of reference for them that they can never forget. Absolutely. You know? mm-hmm. And I'm sure you and your cousins who are here, maybe now as you're growing older you will listen more. Yes. You know? Or recall what they've told you. I think you're absolutely right, Jay. I didn't really care about it when I was yeah. like six or seven. It was just something. But yeah, the older I get, uh, the more I am amazed and uh, just very respectable. Respectful. Well, that was our colleague Mimi um, ta- sharing her very personal family story um, in one of the DC Reads programs. Um, yeah. Um, do you want to comment, David? Uh, I think Mimi touched on a few things that came up throughout uh, the stories and in, in Nguyen's uh, discussion at the end of the month also. Uh, you know, one thing he talked about, and I'll, I'll give a little shout out to Ruth Tam from WAMU who came to the talk and took some really great uh, live tweets, which are, are, have been my notes for thinking about the talk since then, so I appreciate that she did that. But she she reminded me that he really uh, uh, explored the idea of what it means to be a good refugee or a bad refugee and really uh, wants to get away from that because he wants refugees, all of us, to be in solidarity with each other, which is the right thing to do. But he made the comment that the only thing that made us good was that we were lucky. Like, luck was the thing that allowed his family to survive, kind of related to what Mimi said. And um, that term boat people, you know, he also, he, he, he uses the, the term oceanic refugee. And right. uh, Ruth noted in her, her tweets that a lot of people in the audience, there, laughed, was, there right? was some laughter when he made that, that comment, and he certainly wasn't making a joke. And I think, I don't, I, I w- that would be a good conversation to talk about why, why people laugh, why people thought that was funny. I don't think it was disrespect, but I think mm-hmm. there was some some ignorance there just uh you know Mimi used the term boat people he's he's asking us to use a different term and I think again it's just an example of why this is valuable to have people sitting together and talking about what these words mean and what they represent in terms of these real people's lives or the the things that the characters in this book go through um that that's the real values that we have people sitting and talking about that and so um those are some things I think about when I listen to Mimi tell that story and as they came up in, in the author's discussion at the end of right. the month. Yeah, no, um, I mean, there's so many words that we use every day that have a history of meaning very specific things. Mm-hmm. And even though when we use them, they may not have that meaning, like, there's still, like, a history there. Yeah. And I think it's important to unpack these terms to really think what it is to be a refugee like one of the things that came up in our coffee and conversation was, you know, like the idea that to be a refugee, you have been dehumanized. Mm-hmm. Um, you have lost agency of your own life. Like you have to undergo this whole process of escaping your country. Like with the Vietnamese people, like trying to get on a boat and coming to the United States and being under the peril of like pirates and so many dangers and then even at the author talk hearing how many people didn't survive that experience Um, and then when they are here in the US like oftentimes there's camps where where they need to live and like it's very like 
there's it's very similar to what people what immigrants go through and undocumented immigrants go through and how families and 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 children are being separated from each other yeah like all these things are very dehumanizing and like i think the focus on it's like to go through this in in life is very hard um so you just have to I think the message that Vietnam gives is really like we are like the lucky ones who are here and getting to live our lives and we have like we 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 should really focus on uniting together and making sure that we are giving as much love to people mm-hmm. of every background no matter what it is mm-hmm. um but yeah it was really I mean it's just very important that we're having these conversations and I'm glad that the library can be a venue yeah. for these open conversations. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would say one other thing about that story is that it, among the eight stories it's it's a ghost story. There's a ghost in it, which I, you know, hope I'm not spoiling that part <laughs> of it for people, but in discussions of that story including the one that we were just listening to and I I think this came up for you maybe a little bit. Right. Like people people were asking each other the question like do you believe in ghosts? Yeah. Uh, what is that something you've experienced in your own life? Which I think, you know, in my experience of working at the library, we don't always ask those those questions. Questions yeah. about I like, mean, we he, we've heard that some of our branches are haunted by ghosts. Sure, I yeah. don't know which ones, but there are some hauntings. That's right. Um, so <laughs> yeah. anyway, I think again, that's just I, I appreciate that people had a had a grown up discussion about that. Yeah. Uh, about that part yeah. of people's family histories. Yeah, no, I mean that is, that that is something that came up in our conversation, like the idea of ghosts. Like, I mean, I can say that in my family, people believe in ghosts. Um, I think when was saying in his talk that oftentimes ghosts represent these traumas that mm. we kind of just ignore and forget about, and we maybe even pretend to have moved on from these traumas but really they're still wedged in there and they often become like these ghosts and Mm. sometimes they're ghosts that remind us of love Mm. and sometimes they're ghosts that remind us of these really bad the experiences that we've gone through Mm -hmm. and yeah it can be very dangerous if like, like I don't know if your experiences are very difficult and um you have these experiences of traumas and you're still living with them like it can you could lose connection with reality mm-hmm. um, so it's very hard to even talk about these traumas oftentimes and it's really difficult for people to do that yeah um, we also had some other conversations maybe we could listen to the fourth clip where we have some of our teenagers discussing um, can you remind me who the yeah, two members. The, the library has a, a teen council. Uh, we have uh, kind of great teenagers who are employed by the library to, to lead some projects. And Lauren Chinime and Paige Hollander sat down and discussed war years, which Nguyen, uh, he has said, that's the only story in the book that is autobiographical. It contains parts from his life. Yeah, so it's clip four with um, Lauren Chinime and Paige Hollander other people in appearance wise and not only that through a yeah. character because like when like when coming to like the gunman and like the robbery well the attempted robbery it's like his mom instead of like kneeling down like him and his like father she's just like ah 
yeah. and, like, runs straight out the house. Yeah. And it ends up calling the attention of other people, and the police show up, and it's just like, why Why did you do that, like the father said? Yeah, I mean, it, it's and just it ended like, up helping saved them, our lives, yeah. right? <laughs> um, it was really funny. Yeah, but you kind of do get the impression that he doesn't really understand his mother, mm-hmm. um, or I, or his father, for that for that matter. Um, yeah. And that definitely has to do with, like, the drift between, like, them growing up in Vietnam and, like, having to deal with, like, all the issues that were happening in, like, communism yeah. and um, and him growing up in America and being kind of removed from what his parents had to go through. Mm-hmm. And they don't really understand each other. Yeah, they don't understand each other at all. Like, I remember, like, somewhere in here he asked his dad if he can have an allowance because other kids in his class had allowances, like, from their parents and everything. Mm-hmm. And obviously since they came from, like, the Vietnam War and they escaped and they were refugees and they had to make up their own money like they don't have as much mm-hmm. as other families do it's like when he acts his father like goes like back and he just compiles a list of all the things that he had to pay for yep. for his son and he's just like once you pay me back for all of this then we can talk about an allowance i was just like this is so <laughs> oh my god it was so funny especially since like from like like my parents they give me an allowance and everything but before like when i was in third grade i started asking for an allowance because it I went to, in third grade, I started going to an all-white elementary school. Not called Lafayette. Have you heard of it? It's like uh, Lafayette? Chase. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Like Lafayette, I, I went there, Lafayette. and there was, like, a ton of, like, kids that just lived in a very nice neighborhood near Tenley Town. And I was just like, so can I start getting an allowance? And that was around the time when I also wanted a phone, too. So they were just like, why do you need an allowance after we pay for your braces, yeah. <laughs> your clothes, your food, health insurance, all this other stuff? And we are just like... Yikes! After that, you just don't ask about it. Eventually, they were wanting to give me an allowance, but by then they kind of just wanted to like have it in my head that I was lucky with what I had, because like even in Nigeria, like their parents, they like they grew up during the time of like the Nigerian Civil War. I'm not sure if you learned about that. I, or I don't know it. much about it, but um, do tell. It's basically um, there's a Biafran movement, and it was basically like people that went to separate from the rest of Nigeria, sort of along the eastern part of Nigeria, and that was the section of Nigeria my parents were from. So uh, around that time, like the Biafran were trying to separate, and they're recognized by like, a few countries, but not by a lot of countries. So then, like um, Nigeria, they didn't want a lot of them to separate because obviously they want to keep that part because they contained a bit of like the oil where they get most of their money from. So, like, they tried to keep them there through violence, and so there was a civil war about it. And around that time, my parents were, like, very young. They were, like, five-ish, or, like, they were just born, so there weren't any birth records. Like, they didn't have a birth certificate or anything. They had to make up the day of their birthday. Like, they had to assume around which time they were born. And they also don't really have that many, like, childhood pictures of themselves. So you kind of see, like, you know, it's just... Like, it's different, like, the way they grew up versus, like, what you grew up. And, like, them, they didn't even have birth certificates. Like, they're parents didn't even have a proper education because like there was a civil war and conflict going around and the british had just left and like they didn't really know what to do with the money that they had and the newly discovered oil that they had so it was kind of a, just a very <laughs> confusing chaotic time and it's kind of it connects to the same thing with the vietnam war how it was like a different difference in ideas and they just got their independence like, right after the independence, they started, like, hashing it out. Like, you know, we want to rule this way. You Like, now nah, we want to rule this way. And then the U.S. got involved, which matters even worse, because, like, obviously they don't know much about the conflict or, like, their culture or anything or what was going on. So, I don't know. It's, like, confusing, chaotic moments that they grew up in versus, like, America. It's just, like, cheery, happy things, commercials about, like, 
um, I don't know, like toys and all this other stuff, like technology everywhere. Like you're a weirdo if you don't have an iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much um, it. Yeah, and I think you kind of see like how he, how in some ways, like maybe part of the the, the divide between him, him and his parents has to do with like how he has taken the privileges he's had because he's been living in America for granted, yeah. whereas mm-hmm. they haven't nor will ever um, because they know what it really is like to to live in fear. Yeah. Um, and you can tell they treasure every penny too because like right. the mother was she talk- so reluctant yeah. to she give ta- away Right, that money. yeah. Yeah. I was surprised she gave away that much too. Yeah, like tortured. Like, yeah, it was a lot. That shows uh-huh. like even though she left the country, she still cares about like what happens to it and like the mm-hmm. people that are there. It's like Mrs. Hua telling her story like really like right. moved her to like remember her country and why she left it so much. And even though she left it, she still loves it. Right. Or even about the people from her country here, you know. Yeah. Um I think I think a lot of it had to do with like sympathy for Miss Hua, um, and maybe, you know, a little less to do with what was actually happening in Vietnam, but instead like trying to have a meaningful connection with someone else who knew what it was like to live like that. Um, yeah. So, yeah. That's true. We don't really learn much about the mother's story in this. You kind of just see it from we a mother's perspective. We don't. And yeah. I, don't, I feel like throughout the story, like, they didn't actually talk to their son that much. So that was um, Lauren and Paige discussing the war years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think their conversation really about identity is very unique to me. Um, it resonates with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we have, I mean, our country has also been open and as a result there's so many people and oftentimes as a a first or second generation person you don't even can relate to your own family members Mm. um but david um we're getting close to the end of the show um (laughs) is there anything else you want to leave us with um with dc reads or just any comment on the refugees no, I, I it was just it was a lot of fun recording those conversations. Uh, we didn't get to a fourth clip with Maria McWhorter and Carrie Williams that I would highly recommend people listening to them. Uh, if you go to dclibrary.org/dcreads, you'll see a link to a discussion guide that has streaming audio of all seven of the conversations, and that one with Maria and Carrie was particularly rich in terms of relating the story fatherland to aspects of african-american history and african-american migration inside of the country yeah and i mean their conversation is really important in the sense that they're really talking about history and how these different moments in history they have different names and they happen in different places but really they're the same and we can draw many different similarities and learn from all of these things by by mm-hmm. kind of talking about them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this has been um, an episode of Notes from the Library on DC Public Library on Full Service Radio, broadcasted live from the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, DC. David, thanks again for joining me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Victor. Yeah. Um, so please sign up for the library's summer challenge on dclibrary.org, summer challenge. That's dclibrary.org forward slash summer challenge. And follow us on Instagram at DC Public Library and on Twitter at DCPL. Download the show wherever you get your podcast by searching for Full Service Radio, DCPL Radio. Thank you for listening and enjoy your afternoon. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. 
Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on Mixcloud.com slash Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at Full Service RDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.